49 years ago this month, it became legal to kill, or I should say murder, innocent children created by God while they were in their mother's womb, which should be the safest place on earth for a child. This week I was doing a little digging, and I found an article um, from Worldometers. Worldometers is an organization that, that tracks trends over the years, and they give you a summary of the previous year. And last year's trends when it comes to death, 8.7 million people died of cancer, an additional 5 million from smoking, 13 million from other diseases, Three and a half million from COVID, 42.6 million were aborted. That's nearly 12 times the number of deaths from COVID last year. As Pastor Jason mentioned, next Sunday, January 16th, is designated Sanctity of Life Sunday. Next Sunday here in uh, Arkansas, we'll have the March for Life, one of the simplest ways you can declare that you stand for life. You just show up, you're there for about an hour, but the size of the crowd continues to say to our society that we stand for, we believe in life. It's very, very simple. Hope you'll plan on that next Sunday, two o'clock. Information's in all our publications. This morning, we're gonna speak biblically about the topic of abortion. I recognize that topic stirs a lot of emotions, stirs anger, stirs guilt in some, I wish it stirred more of us out of apathy and into action. I want to say very clearly, as a pastor, because I hear this from other pastors who don't want to go there, abortion is not a cultural issue. It is not a political issue. Some pastors will say, well, it's a, it's a controversial issue. I'm not going to speak about controversial issues. Listen, the gospel is controversial. As pastors, we're called to speak the full truth, the full counsel of the gospel. Abortion is a moral issue. It is a sin issue. And like any spiritual issue, like any sin issue, we want to approach that with two things. One, judgment of sin, because that's what God does. He judges sin, but also grace, what he gives to those who are willing to confess and to repent from their sin. Let me be very clear. Abortion is the taking of a human life. Not a fetus, not a blob of tissue, not an appendage. It is the taking of a human life. It is murder. And God's word is very, very clear about that. I, I'm not sure anyone in the sound of my voice this morning, whether you're here or, or many of you joining us online, I'm not sure any of you would necessarily disagree that the taking of a human life, that murder is sin. You may disagree with me that abortion is the murder of a human being, but we'll get to that in a few moments. God judges sin. God punishes sin. That's what a holy God must do. But God also, according to his word, forgives any and every sin, any and every sinner who confesses and is repentant over that sin. 
The reason we need to discuss abortion in, in the context of the church is that abortion has not only had an impact on our society. Abortion has had an impact in the church, not just our church, but the church. It's estimated, and the reason it's estimated is we, we don't want to talk about it. It's estimated that as many as one in four women who are regular church attenders have had an abortion. Now, if you add to that the fathers of those aborted children, if you add to that friends, siblings, parents who either encouraged or enabled uh, that young woman to have an abortion, the number of people in the church who've been impacted and who carry a great load of guilt is quite staggering. And so as a church, we're called upon to address the issue. And, and where I must begin, because there's so many wounded people in the church, is I must begin with grace. And so let me be very clear this morning, because some of you, I'm afraid, either here or online, have tuned me out when I said abortion is murder, abortion is sin. Let me be very clear this morning, the purpose is not to heap guilt on you. I want you to understand the heart of God and understand his judgment is not just on those directly involved. His judgment is on all of us who choose to do nothing. And the purpose this morning is prevention. It's not to pile on those who've already committed the sin. It's to bring those to conviction, not condemnation, to conviction that they might be drawn to the Lord to deal with that sin. So if you're here this morning and you're listening online this morning and you have in some way uh, been involved in the act of abortion, God's desire is to forgive. God's desire is to bring you to a place of spiritual health and, and healing. Abortion is not the greater sin. You know, we like, we like to rank, we like to grade sins on which is worse than the other. Some sins have greater consequences, absolutely, no question about it. But abortion is not the, the greater sin. The same level of grace and forgiveness is available to you as it is to any other sinner and for any other sin. In just a few moments, I'm going to invite a, a guest to join me uh, up here on the platform. She's here today because she can speak very, very clearly to redemption, to forgiveness, and to the healing that is available for those who have been wounded by abortion. Now, before she comes this morning, I want to take a few moments. I don't have time to do a deep dive because I want to save time for her. I want to take a few moments and make sure that we all who are gathered here have a good uh, basic biblical foundation or understanding of what uh, we need to know as believers when we consider abortion in our society and culture. And for that, I want to ask four questions this morning to help us make sure we have a good understanding. Question number one, very simply, would be this, when does life begin? Now, if you want to answer the question, when does life begin, the easiest way is to go back and look at when life ends. If someone is, is aging, has a terminal disease, has a horrific accident, what is it the medical community looks for to determine if there's still life? Two things a heartbeat, and brain activity. Well, when does life begin? A baby in the womb has a heart beating as early as somewhere between 18 and 24 days, and brain activity typically occurs at about the point of week six. So very early uh, in the womb, we see signs of life in this child. Forty years ago, 
the California Medical Society in their annual publication made this statement regarding life. The cell formed by the union of an ovum and sperm represents the beginning of a human being at the point of the union. Fertilization is a critical landmark because, listen, a new genetically distinct human organism is thereby formed at the moment of fertilization. A new distinct human organism is thereby formed. It's not just a part of the mother's body. It's an individual, unique human being created by God. Well, more importantly than what medical science tells us, what does the Bible say? Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. God said to Jeremiah, I chose you, I set you apart before you were even born. God established everything that would happen in Jeremiah's life before he was even born. Makes me think of Psalm 139, 16. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Ephesians 2.10, we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance, in advance of what? Your very life, prepared in advance for us to do. Psalm 22.10, David said, you have been my God from my mother's womb. And then, of course, the 139th Psalm, verses 13 through 16, an incredible description of God's relationship, God's hand in the unborn. The fact that the psalmist says to God, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. There was this relationship with God even in the womb. I believe God's word expresses clearly that life begins at the moment of conception. Second question this morning. Is God the author and creator of? of all human life. What about what we would term problem pregnancies? What about a pregnancy that occurs due to a sinful act? What about a pregnancy that occurs because of rape or incest, which by the way, is a very, very small number of abortions that are performed every year. But but what about those? Well, I will tell you that women who have suffered through a rape or incest and chosen to abort that child would tell you unequivocally that abortion did not bring healing to them. It compounded the issue. And I would ask the question, if your thought is, well, we can't take that away, if your thought is that, I would ask you, in what other crime do we condemn the innocent? That's exactly what happens when you take the life of a child because of the way that child was conceived. Well, what about a pregnancy that results in a, in a disability or a, or a deformity? What about when a parent knows that this child is going to have some disability or deformity? Well, first of all, clearly from Scripture, the worth of a person is not determined by what they're able to do or not do. What's it determined by? It's determined by the fact that every human being is made in the image of God. Even those that are disabled or have some sort of handicap are made in the image of God. We can't say we believe the Bible and deny that the unborn are persons, are humans. 
Do you believe, as God's word says in Genesis, that all his works are wonderful? All his works are wonderful. Culture doesn't believe that. You know, the country of Denmark is quite proud that they have virtually eliminated Down syndrome in their country. Isn't that amazing? You know how they did it? They offer free tests to every pregnant woman, and if it's determined her baby may have Down syndrome, the vast majority, 95%, abort that baby. Last year in the entire country of Denmark saw 18 children born with Down syndrome. The New York Times recently came out with an article, the New York Times, not a conservative newspaper, not a pro-life organization. The New York Times came out with an article drawing attention to the frequent inaccuracies of non-invasive prenatal screening tests. Certain prenatal genetic tests are wrong up to 93% of the time. Testing certainly is profitable, but rarely accurate. The market size for prenatal testing is estimated to be between $600 million to $1 billion and growing. Yet research has shown that so-called positive results, and by the way, a positive result doesn't guarantee your baby has that disability or deformity. A positive result just means there's an increased likelihood or risk. Research has shown that positive results can be wrong more than 90% of the time. And there are stories in the article of parents who chose to abort their babies only to find out after the child was aborted that there was no deformity, nothing wrong at all with that child. What about the unplanned pregnancy? What about the mom who finds herself with a child and, and she doesn't know what to do. Maybe we say that child is unwanted. I, I don't know since when that the value of somebody's life depends on whether or not they're wanted. And I can't think of any civilized culture that tells one human being it's okay to kill another human being to take care of the first human being's problem. What about the unplanned pregnancy? CNN. Do I need to mention they're also not pro-life or even conservative? CNN ran a recent article, Life Can Be Tough for Kids in Many Anti-Abortion States. We're one of them, by the way. Arkansas, I believe, is still the number one. We may have slipped to number two most pro-life state in the nation, but we have a long way to go. Pro-life states are harming children by making it difficult to end their lives in abortion. Let me read that again. Pro-life states are harming children by making it difficult to end their lives in abortion. Some of the states with the strongest pro-life protections have poor outcomes for children compared with other states. Have they considered that death might be a poor outcome? You know, they're basically advocating that we should abort the poor because they're poor. Anybody besides me growing up in a single-parent home, anybody besides me growing up in a home that was at or near poverty level? It 
Despite the claim by Melinda Gates that birth control is poverty control, killing the poor is not a solution to poverty. Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in heaven. His kingdom rules over all. What does that mean? It means that God is sovereign. It means that there's an unwanted or unplanned pregnancy. That doesn't take God by surprise. Psalm 135, verse 6. Yahweh does what he pleases in heaven and on earth and in the seas and all the depths. He is the sovereign Lord over creation, over the affairs of man. There is no such thing in the economy of God as an unwanted pregnancy. That's not in his mind and not in his will. Question three this morning, very direct. What does God say about taking life? Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image. If every human being is truly made in the image of God, then any time we take a life, we are attacking the very image of God. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, do not murder. Let me explain that to you in the Hebrew, or is that pretty clear? Deuteronomy 32, 39, I alone am the Lord. There is no God but me. I bring life. I bring death. He's the only one who has the right. Job Chapter 12, verse 10, the life of every living thing is in his hand. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 and 17 list seven things that the Lord finds detestable. One of those seven is this, hands that shed innocent blood. There is a lot of innocent blood that has been shed in our land and is being shed in our land. 2,363 every day. Over 862,000 this last year. Question number four, and this is probably most important to us here this morning. What does God expect of his people in, in regard to, to abortion? What does God expect? I think first and foremost, I would say God expects us to honor him over government and culture. It doesn't matter what the government says when they violate the laws of God. It doesn't matter what's popular in culture when culture is clearly turned from the things of God and the law of God. In Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, you remember that the uh, Israelites, the, the Jews were captive in Egypt and they began to get so numerous that the Pharaoh ordered that all the baby boys be killed. And in Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, you see the two uh, head Hebrew midwives, Shipra and Pua, who were told by Pharaoh to make sure that all the baby boys got killed and they ignored his decree. And God protected them from Pharaoh and God provided for them and God even blessed them with families of their own. They said, we can't do what the government is telling us to do because it violates the law of God. In Acts chapter four, verses 19 and 20, the apostles are called in before the religious leaders and they are told to stop sharing the message they were sharing. And they simply responded, we're, we're not gonna stop. You, you judge for yourself whether we should listen to you or, or listen to God. There is a time when we have to do what is right before God regardless of what government or culture tells us. 
Proverbs chapter 24, verses 10 through 12. Rescue those being taken away to death. Hold back those stumbling to slaughter. If you say you didn't know, the one who weighs the heart perceives it. Perceives what? Your lie. We can't, as prevalent as this is in our culture, we can't continue to say, well, I, di I didn't know. I didn't know something needed to be done. I'll never forget going to Dachau in Germany and finding out that prison camp was right across the street from a neighborhood. And for so long, the people that are around that area said, well, we, we didn't know what was happening over there inside that fence. You say you didn't know, the one who weighs the heart perceives it. We are to defend the unborn and their mothers. And that's the last thing I want to communicate this morning. What does God expect of us? Not only to honor him, not only to protect the unborn and their mothers, but we're called to care for the spiritually wounded, all spiritually wounded. Paul in Galatians 6.1 wrote these words, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. And then James 5.20, whoever turns a sinner from the air of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. So I want us to take just a few minutes this morning and focus on those who have been wounded, those who need redemption, those who need healing and forgiveness. I'm gonna ask Courtney, if you would, to come on at this time. This is Courtney Beck. Courtney and I met, I think, about three years ago and have had uh, crossed paths several times since then. Courtney is a wife and a mom, and she has a story that I think will help us understand how important it is for the church to be involved in the process of redemption when it comes to the issue of abortion. Thanks for being here, Courtney. Thank you. Good morning. Christian author, speaker, and missionary, Elizabeth Elliot wrote, if Christ is to live in my heart, if his life is to be lived in me, I will not be able to contain him. The self, small and resisting as a nut, will have to be ruptured. My own purposes and desires and hopes will have to be exploded at times. The rupture of the self is death, but out of death comes life. The acorn must rupture if an oak tree is to grow. Before I begin to share this morning, I just want to make sure that I acknowledge um, that I do take full responsibility for my actions. And um, none of you probably know my family, but I just wouldn't want to ever um, reflect negatively on them. I was born in a small town here in Arkansas to just your basic all-American middle-class church-going family. I grew up in a pretty large church, not this big, but I did grow up in church, involved in the youth group and all that stuff. And my family provided for my every need and want, and they loved me. I have no excuse for not being cared for, for being abused or anything like that. I have a wonderful family, and I'm still close to them. Now, we were by no means perfect. By many standards, we were pretty normal. And like most families, we did think that we had this image to maintain. But when I was 16 and a couple of months into a relationship, I found out that I was pregnant. I was just this 11th grade girl that loved to ride my horse and play basketball, 
laugh with my friends, and I was beginning to think about college. I couldn't be pregnant, but I was pregnant. And I became completely paralyzed by terror and panic. And this created this tunnel vision, and all I could see was the desperation to protect my family and the father of the baby and myself from shame and from fear of the unknown. Well, abortion was presented to me along with an appointment to go get it done and the money. And so I set out to fix my mistake and never look back. I didn't go to any adult for help, and I didn't even give my parents a chance to help me. 26 years ago, I took life into my own hands, into my own immature and terrified hands with no help because I decided that I could not be pregnant. You may wonder how I did this without any adult in my life knowing. It's actually still shocking to me, even though I am the one that went through this whole process on my own. And it doesn't make a lot of sense to me, because by law, here in the state of Arkansas, if you are under 18, you can't vote, you can't purchase tobacco or a lottery ticket. Not that I'm suggesting you should, but that's the law here in Arkansas. And if you're under the age of 18 and you want to get married, change your birth name, purchase a gun, enlist in the military, or go get a tattoo or a body piercing, you are legally required to obtain parental or guardian consent first. The same does go for abortion for a minor, but with this there is a loophole. And this is very disturbing to me still. The abortion clinic will actually call down to the courthouse here in Little Rock and schedule a private hearing for a minor female to go before a circuit judge. And at no additional cost, and in complete confidentiality, she can go before this judge and tell him or her why she thinks she needs an abortion without consent. If this young woman appears to be mature enough to be making this decision on her own free will, or it seems that it's not in her best interest to obtain consent, he simply signs an, a legal document called a judicial waiver and sends her on her way back down to the abortion clinic. And at the time I went, that all happened in one day. One day, I went before a judge. I'd never been in a courthouse, I don't guess, in my life. Tell him why I need this done. Go back to the abortion clinic. Have that done. Go home. And I was 16. Those were the steps that I took to obtain that abortion. So on December the 23rd, 1995, that was the day that I entered a shell and the lights truly went out in my life. You know, I mentioned that I love to play basketball. Well, after that day, um, I had to quit because I couldn't come up with a good enough excuse as to why I couldn't play for six weeks. And the day stands out in my mind so clearly, and I want to share this because there's young people in here, and you think that when you're young, you know, um, your hobbies are everything and your friends, and, you know, that's your life. Well, basketball was all I wanted to do. And it wasn't because I was that great or I started or anything like that, but those were my people. That was my team. That's where my best friends were at. So I walked in there one day, not long after I'd had the abortion, and I had my bag and all the things in it I had to turn in and walked into my coach's office and put it on his desk, and I told him I quit. And I remember him looking at me across his desk like, what are you doing? And so I make up some excuse about how I was tired of sitting the bench and, um, you know, had some bad attitude about it and turned around and walked out. And this also happened to be the day that my entire team was getting on the bus to go out of town to some 
tournament. I think we had had a good team that year, and we're going to, you know, some conference. And I walked out in the parking lot, and all my friends were on the bus. And I was walking in my car. And I remember my best friend had her head out the bus window, you know, and she was like, hey, Court, where are you going? And I was like, I'm going home. I quit. And I just remember her being like, what are you doing? And I got in my car, devastated. Then I became completely isolated. Not only that, I had the gift of creativity. And after that, that became completely blocked. My joy and my laughter were gone. I was miserable and angry all the time. I began to have nightmares and flashbacks and smells and images that I could remember from the abortion facility haunted me. I couldn't see an accurate reflection of myself in the mirror. I remember one day looking in the mirror and looking at a picture of myself and the two did not even look the same. I had completely lost sight of myself and who I was. I couldn't look other people in the eyes. I remember for years after that, especially as an older teenager and into my 20s, people asking me, why don't you ever smile? Well, I was completely depressed and severely um, just anxiety ridden. And I hated myself so much that I can remember I would lay down at night and say, God, please just don't let me wake up tomorrow. And then I would be mad because I woke up again. So then I began to live a very unhealthy lifestyle because I had zero self-respect, zero self-esteem, zero self-love. And you can imagine how this affected all of my relationships after that, my friendships, then it carried over into marriage and my ability to be a healthy mother later on. But worst of all, I had no relationship with Jesus. Now, I believed in Jesus. I believed that he, he was born and lived and died on the cross and rose from the grave, but I didn't think he did that for me. There's no way he could have done that for me because I felt so unworthy, unlovable, beyond forgiveness, and I felt sure I was going to hell. So for over 18 years, I was a prisoner of the deepest shame that any person can imagine. I was completely trapped within myself in this secret, dark sin. That's all I focused on was that and this pitiful existence that I had been the cause of. I feel like that's probably what it's like to experience the unending process of spiritual death. Well, then at the age of 31, years later, God gave me a son. And I was so excited when he got here. But at the same time, I was completely full of depression, anxiety, and guilt. Because the weight of what that abortion had done all those years earlier became unbearable. And I remember one day I was sitting at the kitchen table with my husband, and I was crying and telling him that I don't deserve to be our son's mother, telling him I was a horrible mother, which it wasn't true. I was taking care of him. I was just feeling, you know, just so sad and so unworthy. And my husband just put his hand on top of mine, and he gently said, why don't you own it? Do something about it. Quit letting this control you. Well, in the moment, I was thinking, what does that even mean? This, this had controlled my life for years. I mean, from 16 to 31, when I hear these words, it's, that's all I could think about is what a horrible human being I was. 
But those words were like a little knock from God at the shell of my existence. And my heart began, began to become open to the idea of do something about, doing something about this. So over the course of the next few months, I was divinely led to a pregnancy resource center in the town that I live in, where I found out about a post-abortion healing retreat that they offered. So I went through that, and it was incredible and life-changing. And then I was fired up about, you know, my healing and, and all that. And so I began to serve in this uh, pregnancy care center for several years. And then I found out the min about the ministry of Deeper Still, which is a post-abortion healing retreat ministry. And through those post-abortion healing retreats, the shell of me was ruptured. And the light of Christ began to come in. And I came face-to-face -face with Jesus. And I received him as my savior, like for real, not just because I grew up in a church and it was kind of like, oh, everybody's saved. No, I mean, I truly was like, I know you, Jesus, and I want you to be my savior. I learned about the real character of God and that his grace and mercy and forgiveness were for me too. And it completely changed my life. I said yes to serving Jesus. I just wanted to serve him. I didn't really know at the time what that looked like, but I remember laying there on the floor one night at the re retreat just saying, yes, God, I will serve you because I knew what it was like to be freed of guilt. I had truly become captivated with Christ, and that has grown over the years. Well, sometime after that retreat, I did uh, build up the courage to tell my parents who didn't know about it. And of course, they were so sad, but they love me so much, and so we've moved past that. But one of the things that my mom said to me has stood out. She said, I knew something happened to you because it was like a switch was flipped and the lights went out, but I didn't know how to reach you. And having a child now that's preteen, I mean, that is heartbreaking as a mama to know that you see this pain on your child and you don't know how to help them. It is so clear, isn't it, that abortion completely changes a woman. And, you know, I've been asked over the years a few times here and there, like, why do you want to talk about this, Courtney? Even from family members, why do you want to bring this back up? Why? Well, I can tell you the first reason why is because the testimony of what Jesus Christ has done in my life is exciting. And I'm still excited about it. But on the flip side of that, the sad side is that abortion is not rare which means that there are a lot of wounded women and men walking around. Like Pastor Dave said, it is, it is estimated that, there, that one out of four women has had an abortion by the time she reaches the age of 45. And that crosses all racial lines, religious lines, churched and unchurched. And some of the effects on women include immediate and long-term damage to the reproductive organs, some women experience in, in later pregnancies preterm delivery because of cervical incompetence. They experience difficult labor just due to all this, the scar tissue that is left. And then some women actually are sterile because there was so much damage done to the uterus. uterus. And I know women that this has all happened to. So these aren't just things that pro-life you know, people pull out of the air to make people scared. These do happen. Other women also experience symptoms related to post-traumatic stress, like anxiety, depression, flashbacks, grief, shame, regret, 
Also, the inability to bond with future children. A lot of women struggle with control and addiction issues, and some, even, some women even commit suicide. As we all know, women don't get pregnant on their own, but it, it may surprise some people that men are affected by abortion too. For a man, the fathering instinct is intrinsic to their spiritual DNA, much like mothering is to a woman. Men are designed to procreate, protect, provide, and lead. And while they may not immediately recognize that abortion caused them a loss, years later, when the reality of this hits them, they'll report feeling anger and rage, depression and anxiety, loss of confidence, and powerlessness. Abortion emasculates a man in their role in society. Abortion leaves a hole in a woman and a man's heart and a hole in their family tree. And I actually just thought of this a few minutes ago when I was sitting there. I want to share this. My husband, years before he met me, when he was a teenager, also him and a young lady, they were in an unplanned pregnancy. And they never considered abortion, but they had their son. And so our son, mine and my husband's son, we have an 11-year-old, he has an older brother that is 30. He could have also had another older sibling that would have been mine. And I think about that often when I see the two of them together because they look just alike, just years apart. It's been 49 years. I know Pastor Dave said some of this, but it's been 49 years since Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton was passed, which allows women full legal access to an abortion. And it's estimated, the number I saw, is that 62 million preborn lives have been lost during that time. And that's just here in the United States. I don't, I can't even imagine what the number would be globally because abortion isn't just happening here, it's everywhere. I'd like for us to consider that all these years later, we are all post-abortive. Even if we're not personally post-abortive, we may be a post-abortive grandparent, aunt, uncle, best friend. We may be the living child of a parent that previously had an abortion, or maybe we were an accomplice to an abortion. We drove a person there, paid for it, encouraged it, and it doesn't stop there. Now abortion workers who have accepted the truth about life and accepted the truth about what abortion does in ending that life are leaving their careers traumatized and devastated, and they also need help and healing. And then with the recent push for the abortion pill to be so readily accessible for at-home abortions, more and more first responders and healthcare workers may become traumatized as they are called in to help with the aftermath of these abortion pills at home. They're, you know, the whole thing just going wrong. I have personally heard stories from women when I worked in the pregnancy care center that had taken the abortion pill and had the most horrific things happen to them during this experience. And let's not be fooled because the abortion industry is not going to follow the timelines and the guidelines that they offer, and this is not safe. If you've never seen the movie Unplanned, I suggest that you watch it um, because you will get a better understanding of what it's like with the abortion pill. So the ripple, the ripple effect of abortion is far and reaching, and we have all been affected by it. 
We may ask, why should we care if someone's post-abortive? That's their business. Or what can we even do? I mean, it is a huge problem. Well, as Pastor Dave said, God detests the shedding of innocent blood. And we know that sin separates us from God. Abortion certainly does. And the decision to abort is a horrible attempt at playing God and determining our own outcome. 2 Corinthians 5, 19 through 20 reads, In Christ, God was reconciling the people to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We should care because if we are ambassadors for Christ, we should be ministers of reconciliation. And we all know that not one of us is sinless. We are all in need of the redemption of Christ. So let us not look down on any brothers and sisters that are searching for freedom in Christ, especially those experiencing the sin of abortion. Because I can tell you it is deep and shameful and ugly. And it is so hard to confess anyway. And it is so hard to fully accept the grace and love and mercy of Christ. So I'd like for us to all own up to and do our part in helping redeem the post-abortive to a right relationship with Christ. And unfortunately, there are men and women sitting here this morning hiding their secret and their shame in some dark corner of their heart. They may be hiding it well. Maybe they're not hiding it well and their behavior is just off. But something is going on and they need help. And the last thing they need to feel is the fear of condemnation. And can you even imagine the revival that would take place here at Geyer Springs if you supported your brothers and sisters in walking through the necessary healing and restoration process? I can kind of imagine. Because I want to tell you, in the last nine years that I have been able to um, walk through post-abortion healing with other women, I have witnessed the most incredible life change in other women and men. If you want to meet someone who has truly experienced personal revival, they've been ruptured, sit down with someone that has received the forgiveness of Christ after an abortion. You won't be able to shut them up about the love of Jesus, <laughs> especially if they've attended a deeper still retreat. It's incredible. I mean, they're on fire for God. They have truly tasted and seen the goodness of the Lord. So I would like to share a little bit about this ministry, Deeper Still, because you have very easy access to it. Not only is there a chapter right here in Arkansas, but the executive director, Lori Roush, attends this church. Deeper Still is a healing ministry, and it's set up as a retreat. So for just a few short days, these honor guests get to get away for a few days. They get to let down their guard and lay down their shame and gain a clearer image of Jesus Christ, and gain a deeper comprehension that what he did on the cross was for them too. And they leave redeemed, restored, healed, and free, and it is incredible. This retreat is also fully confidential and completely free to the honor guest. All the teachings are based on Jesus and on biblical principles. And the Arkansas chapter is actually planning to hold three retreats this year. 
So there's no excuse if anyone needs healing to not get there. I promise you will not regret it. You won't. You'll end up leaving saying that was the best thing I've ever done, and you'll love it. And you'll be on fire for Christ. I also want to encourage all of you to attend an upcoming training because it is important to, for Deeper Still to educate the public about the impact of abortion. And since we're all ambassadors of Christ and called to be ministers of reconciliation, this training will teach you more about the impact of abortion, and it will also show you how you can partner in um, being an ambassador for Christ and being a part of someone's redemption story. That training is coming up in March right here in Little Rock. There is a table set up out front for Deeper Still, so be sure and stop there before you leave and learn more about that. And then if you are a post-abortive mother or father and you're sitting here this morning in dark secrecy, in this lonely shell of an existence, I want to gently encourage you to own it. Do something about it and quit letting it control you. Christ wants to live in your heart and flow out of you. But you will have to be ruptured of yourself and your shame and this image that you're trying to hold up. The acorn must rupture if an oak tree is to grow. You're welcome. <laughs> Well, what you did and what I've heard you do before takes a lot of godly courage. So thank you for that. You're welcome. Appreciate thank you. That. Hey, just a couple of things before we wrap up um, that I want folks to kind of hear your input on. I made a list of several things I want to ask you, but I'm, I'm going to try to uh, hold it to just a couple. One is um, I really believe the church's failure through the years to speak on abortion has kind of exacerbated the problem. In other words, a 16-year-old girl who grows up in church but maybe never hears the truth in God's word about that could easily be deceived, could think there were no other options, could think uh, I don't have any other choice. Do you feel like the church has kind of um, not stepped in the gap, done enough about that? Maybe. It probably depends on the church. I can remember when I was in the youth group at the church I grew up in learning about abortion in some capacity. Um, I remember, you know, there was pictures put up and things, but for some reason that didn't resonate with me as being life. There was a miss between God's truth and, you know, the truth about the biology of all that. So for me, what I have seen beneficial, because I know a couple of young ladies that have grown up in a church that's very pro-life, they have learned about God's truth in addition to the biology of, mm. you know, conception and all the processes of a baby. That's fascinating to children. I've even started talking to my son about, you know, how life begins. And, you know, science is fascinating. It's about us. So I just think when someone can get a full grasp of, of course, the truth of God, but also because that's how we all begin, they can connect it to something tangibly. Those two put together, I mean, you've got somebody that's, that's very pro-life. Yeah. You know, we've uh, talked about the number of people in the church that are affected. Obviously, um, you know, we have a big uh, ministry here for those who struggle with addictions. And it has to be handled anonymously because they're worried about the church being judgmental. I think the same thing is true about the issue of abortion. There are a lot of wounded people, mm -hmm. um, but, but they're afraid of the judgment that would come uh, from, from within the church. But, but you have to wonder if you could get past that and, and the wounded people would not be afraid of judgment, they would know they're in a loving, grace-filled place. 
Obviously, it helps them, but I wonder if it doesn't also help uh, that education process of, of others being able to hear. For someone to hear today what you went through, that would maybe just reaffirm for them, hey, that's not a road I want to go down. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think, too, um, trying to think how to put this in words. You know, when you go to church, you feel like you have to put on the church face, and we have to be perfect, and none of us can mess up. But we do. We all mess up, and we all have sin. And unfortunately, it's like you said, you know, some sins have greater consequences. And obviously, abortion, murder, adultery, those things have huge consequences, and they affect lives around you. But, you know, oftentimes, we don't glance at the fact that someone is lying or slandering or gossiping about someone or um, stealing, you know, those things are like, oh, that's not as bad, but, but they're all sins in God's eyes. And so I think we all need to, you know, take a good look at ourselves and what we do in our own lives and maybe view sin as something that we're all in this together trying to battle this thing. And if we are struggling with addiction or um, a past abortion, that um, those people are not beyond redemption, and God right. has a plan for them. It would change the church as a whole. Yes. Yep. Church is a place for sinners. Mm-hmm. It's a hospital for the sick. We want to hide it. I wouldn't hide a broken arm, broken leg very well, but I want to hide my sin. Mm-hmm. You know, one, one um, final thing, and, and that's kind of all-encompassing, I want to ask, what does the church need to be doing, not only to combat abortion and try to end abortion, but to help those who are wounded. I think a lot of times um, the pro-choice side likes to say this about not just the church, but pro-life people, which is a lot of it's the church. Um, all you care about, is, they won't say baby, all you care about is the fetus in the womb. You don't care about the single mom. You don't care about that baby once the baby's born. I think the church is really going to have to step up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was in at the courthouse in Benton back in the fall where we were, the quorum court was trying to decide whether to declare Saline County a pro-life county. And one of the women who spoke against that said that very thing. Well, y'all don't care about the single mom. Y'all don't care about, and I just had to get up at that point. And I said, okay, wait a minute. I can't speak for all churches, but as far as our church goes, um, we support several crisis pregnancy centers. If we find out there is a single mom that has a need, we'll support her directly. Um, we have a culture in our church of, of adoption and fostering. In fact, let me just ask, and, and we don't have everybody here today, how many of you here today have in the past or currently fostered or adopted? Raise your hands real high. So we have a relatively healthy culture, mm-hmm. um, and that, that was not because of me. It was a previous pastor that really kind of developed that culture. And then, of course, we're very involved with Deeper Still. Uh, Women who've had an abortion are not the enemy. They're wounded people. We want to help. So I think, you know, I I feel pretty confident as a church we're doing everything we can, but I think the perception's still out there. Hey, all you pro-life people care about is is the fetus. Mm -hmm. Once birth comes, you just kind of, it's hands off. You don't do anything. What does the church need to do to help overcome that perception? I don't know. That's a huge problem. And I've recently had a conversation with someone else that runs a pregnancy, or no, they have a... um, an adoption agency. And this woman's wanting to start a pregnancy care center in addition to a home for these women because that's the problem is that um, a lot of women feel like they don't have anywhere to go. Um, You know, I think back, like, I don't know what my parents would have done, you know, if I had come home and said, I'm pregnant, but I know that they wouldn't have kicked me out. Or, you know what I mean? Um, 
but there are many people that don't have anyone. And so, you know, it, you, you do wonder, like, what do these young women do? I mean, many of them, you know, find themselves in poverty or a bad situation in a relationship. And so I think that's definitely something to think about as far as figuring out a way how, you know, to help these women that, that do find themselves in an unplanned pregnancy. Yeah. You know, I think, too, we think uh, based on what the Supreme Court does, and, and we're not God's God, not the Supreme Court, but based on where things go with uh, making abortion illegal, perhaps in the state of Arkansas, I think we have a tendency to think, okay, I got that done. There's going to be more work to do. Oh, yeah. There will be tons of babies born that need homes. And, um, I mean, more women will need somewhere to go and need help. And it's not just the church corporate. It's individual believer. I think about Lori Roush, who God laid on her heart to start a chapter deeper still in Arkansas to help. Maybe there's Mm -hmm. someone else, an individual within the church, this church or another church, that God's going to lay a ministry on their heart and raise them up. Mm -hmm. So. Thank you again for, uh, for being here today, for your willingness to share. Let me mention to our folks, we're going to wrap up in just a minute. As you came in, you received uh, this card. It lists uh, seven, eight of our partners um, in, in pro-life work. Uh, several of them are here today. A couple couldn't make it because of COVID reasons. But I also want to point out on the back, or maybe it's the front, uh, where New Beginnings is at the top. On the very bottom of that side, there are three phone numbers there. And the reason those are there is we understand um, if you have an abortion-wounded heart, you probably don't want to call the church and talk to one of the pastors. Um, You're still struggling through that dark secret. And so you see the three there, Lori Roush and Nancy Manila are both members of our body, um, and they're willing. That's their personal number. They're willing to take your call. They don't report to me. They don't report to the church who calls, what happens. And then Bruce Trice, who's not a member of our body but um, is heavily involved uh, in the work. If you're a male and you'd like to talk to a man, he would be a good guy to get in touch with. And, and let me mention, you probably, in this age of uh, so many spam calls, you probably should text them first and say, hey, I'm about to call you, um, and they'll see your number and know, uh, know why you're calling. But we want to do what we can uh, to help those who have wounded hearts, and the church needs to step up and, uh, and do more than we've done. Thank you again. Let's thank Courtney thank for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you.